Imagine a house, your house, and the dwellers within. So the house might be, while not necessarily needlessly big, substantial enough to hold and house more than one. Maybe a family, a friend. Maybe it's just you and the loved one you share the days with is a dog or some pet or a thing you like doing, like building a shed. Maybe you don't even own it, this place. The point is, if you have a house or just a home that can be your house, it's not hard to imagine. So do it. Step sideways. Or just step ahead. There's no way to know how close you are. It's not about a house. It's about him. For argument here, for the etching, for the face of the round and white clock of it, this is about him. Your lover, cat, child. What fits here? What fits in his place? So you can't really figure when it started. You'll assign a timeline later, but it won't stick. In your mind as you go forward, it slips around in your head like a slick fish gasping for life. Knowing there's no chance. Knowing there's none to be had. So at some slipping point on one slipping day, things are different. Maybe it's the weather, the lack of sun. Maybe it's the way the wan light chokes off in the afternoon, making everything, including the plants and the bloody steak waiting for fire, pale as a plate. So one day there's something different. Off. Outside, the sky is the same, the same birds shrieking in the same low trees. The voice you hear seems not to come from his mouth, but from his throat, the skin on his skull. He says words, even the words you think you're used to, words like beautiful, paintbrush, tired. Words like bored, hungry, delicious. He licks his spoon mechanically, holds your gaze with an ice water sheen, a synthetic warmth like exothermic packs of beads. When he says, I love you, you run from the house. You don't know where you're going, and you don't know why. The bumpy grass conspires to break your feet. Your house has been turned over to an alien twin. Imagine. Imagine your unsubstantiated grief. Imagine wanting nothing more but a return to what you know, the breath you ate, the thing next to you that filled in your rough space. In front of you is this chord that you know, but it's dissonant, switched out, 
And then you'll need someone to believe you, to hear your sick list. But there's no one, and the twin will take the sun and run away and step like gold through your trifling door. So what is this uh, concept that you were, you were working on? So I have been exploring this idea of changelings. Uh, this word changeling, uh, it's very eerie. I thought about what I, what I knew about changelings or what I thought I had heard at some points uh, when this, first, this subject first started to present itself to me. I thought I remembered something about it being a specifically Irish uh, folktale discussing the, the occasion where fairies would come in the night and steal a baby from the human family and leave some sort of decoy in its place to at least for a short time fool the other humans. And the, that decoy is what is called the changeling. You know, come to find out, there's really versions of this story um, everywhere. Uh, and you can see why it's a, it's a, it's quite an elastic tale, and it's quite a universal fear, I think. In the different versions of the story, depending on what uh, area or country, part of the world you're talking about, some of the details can vary quite widely. You know, everything from what is, who comes to take the baby, you know, what kind of creature or, or entity is it. Um, usually, usually something supernatural or mythological. Also, the reasons for the stealing of the child uh, vary a lot in these, these stories. There are certain protections and uh, talismans that, that uh, people can place about or indulge in you know, rituals with in order to attempt to keep, to keep the thieves away. And then also the outcome to the story tends to be different. I think that was the part that surprised me the most. Uh, in many of the stories, the, the changeling stays with the family, but eventually is suspected or discovered. And then the human child is either retrieved or not. Uh, there's something about this story that is very frightening, and I think that most of us can relate to. You know, it, it goes into this very idea of possibly abruptly not being able to connect with your loved ones or the people around you. Um, you know, a, uh, the, cre the creeping alienation, of, which I think is very suited to modern life, Oh, where is it? Uh, where is it taking you? I'm in the Great Lakes region right now. I uh, I came to this area because I learned of a group of people uh, who have been gathering regularly to discuss their 
similar experiences. I was invited to go to some of their meetings. Now, these are usually held at someone's home or someone hosts them um, rather than meeting in a, a more public space. And there are a couple of important things about these meetings um, that they adhere to. Uh, one is that the location changes all the time and it is at a neutral place and by that I mean it's not held at any of the homes where the events are occurring because uh, well I think after hearing some of these stories I I understand why so you're saying that that there are groups of people out there and they're all sharing the experience of knowing someone maybe having someone close to them who was who they believe were replaced by some some unidentified other who's masquerading as the person they know the entire groups of these people saying this yes all of these people are quite sure that they are harboring a changeling. And all of them share this commonality of once you find yourself with this belief or in this place, it is terribly frightening and isolating and quite disorienting. And I have to say, I really do feel for these people in fact, I'm tonight, I am breaking one of my own rules. I usually set a parameter that I, I, I don't make a habit of staying with the people I'm interviewing for many reasons, not only personal safety, but also objectivity. And tonight I'm, <laughs> I'm actually staying one of the properties of my host, it's this partly because of this tenderness I feel toward the the people that I've listened to on this trip and also you know it's it's I look out there it's cold it's snowy and there's this feeling of being very seduced by a warm bed flannel sheets a fire but you know it, it's definitely on my mind tonight as I look out there and I think about things what comes in the night, what comes for us in the night. Um, I, I feel like I might have one of those restless nights where I get up before the sun appears and look for, oh, I don't know, something. Tracks in the snow, maybe? Let me ask you, in the folklore that you've read, are, are these changeling incidents is the abduction is it some sort of grim practical joke on the part of these supernatural forces or is it something is their intention usually much darker like why why does this what do these things want that replace these loved ones with the changelings well this is one of the one just one of the really interesting parts about this story uh, and its elastic nature. I mean, that's uh, widely varied, uh, the motive for taking human children. Some 
stories claim that the fairy children need human milk to survive. Uh, other reasons might be the human child is to act as a servant for the for the being um, that steals it. Some say that the the creatures exchange their own actually uh, elderly beings with human children so that the elderly can enjoy the last part of their life uh, in the comfort of human care. Uh, there are also some very specific uh, references to this in history. It was sometimes said that a people forced to flee and hide during wartime were, were moved to switch their own children out with the healthy children of their occupiers as a means of survival. There are any number of reasons. Uh, one, one of the ways that it was believed that you could tell if, if your child was a changeling would be to, to make it laugh, um, which I think is quite a, a disturbing concept. <laughs> uh, and also, I mean, just one of the, one of also of the many ways that this tale uh, could be ascribed to, to modern life or simply mental illness was, you know, the, the suspecting parent believing that their child was a changeling would attempt to facilitate it exposing itself um, by making it laugh or also by torturing it. Just there's, there, this is such a, once you start to delve in this, this story, this, it, it can become a parable quite easily for so many, so many things. And, uh, you know, every trajectory of this story is equally viable and impossible to prove. Her mother sent her a box. The comforting brown paper look of it, the solid taped weight, she loved the receiving of it, everything about it. But it also made her feel a combination of things. She felt included, celebrated, but also a little guilty, a little aberrant. For the thought that she wasn't worthy of this care, this care over years that she wasn't pulling her weight somehow. Her mother had been thinning out the objects in the old house, as anyone will. She kept things, but not extravagantly, and she seemed to have little issue with letting them go when the time came. It's just stuff, her mother had soothed her once when she was younger and living all sorts of places and left behind a scattered mess in her wake. She had, 
out of carelessness, disorganization, left her grandmother's china set behind at one of the houses she fled. She was upset about this, nearly inconsolable. It doesn't matter. In this latest box, she found some of the buried tea she liked, which reminded her of the mountains. She found handwritten recipe cards of some of the things she liked especially. Bean salad, pasta salad, Dominican beans and rice. Three clippings from the local tribune about high school classmates, one she knew had spent time with, and one she didn't remember, and one she actively disliked. The last item in the box was a porcelain doll. Memory flooded back so strong she felt her hand rise involuntarily to her chest. It was her favorite from her sister's stash of storybook dolls, which fascinated her and she coveted hungrily. The dolls, simple-featured, with minimal painted-on faces, were roughly six inches tall and based on characters in books. If you couldn't guess, their names in the Book of Origin was printed on a small golden adhesive oval fixed to a tag or to the bottom of their rigid feet. She remembered the magnetic pop as she would open the glass cabinet where they stood in little rows, their pink cheek dots and ladybug mouths. The dust-stiff satin so green it seemed wrong somehow, like an emerald's dream of green, unseemly in its rich frill. She perched it on her nightstand and dreamed hard, gasping, disoriented, a fruit ripped from a tree. When she woke, she had to pull out of it, strung thin and snapped, staccato heart thumping the surface of the bed. Something about the doll bothered her. It's not the same doll, she told her friend. They sat back, languid on sofas. This is interesting, said her friend, nodding gently. You're a different person now, at a different place in life. Of course this thing would look unfamiliar to you. A show with puppets played jerkily across the TV. You can't relate anymore. It's not the same doll, she told her husband, a curious man and himself a cataloger of oddities, of mysterious things. The world to him, most days, was darkly bright. How do you mean? he asked, with a tinge of tabloid lasciviousness. A greedy marker. It's not quite how I remember it, she told her mother on the phone. The afternoon was rainy, and a shove of wind grabbed the tree outside. She tried to ignore the painted eyes, wide set, too far apart. She sat on the edge of the sofa and leaned out over her knees, 
Is it really the same doll? Well, her mother said, it's strange that you should ask that. The doll stood on the wide coffee table in the middle of the expanse of wood grain, like in the middle of some wide lake or plain. Its red curls burst out above the emerald green confection of satin, little hands buried at the sides. She waited for what would come next. She didn't breathe. Why, Mom, she said. The doll stared, still as ice, with a low, uncanny boldness, undiscovered. I once spent, oh, I think it was in my mid-20s, I spent a winter in uh, Mississippi working on a farm. I had been trying to make my way across the country and just sort of um, got stuck in Mississippi working on this farm for about two months. I, I began in the late afternoons. Every day I would walk uh, down this long country road um, out to a certain landmark and it was a house. It was an old house that had been uh, abandoned a few years before. It wasn't rotting or anything. It wasn't uh, what we would call a spook house. But it was, it was an old house that no one had lived in for more than a few years. It was out all alone uh, off the side of this country road surrounded by, by trees. Two-story thing. And I would walk out to it. And then I would, I would walk back. And Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings, walking out there with a breath pluming in front of my my mouth, I would walk, and I would knew I knew it was time to turn around when I reached that house, an arbitrary landmark. And I became sort of strangely fond of the side of the house, I have to say. It became one of the the nice memories of my time there, that it was you know, time to walk to the house. And about a week before it was time for me to push on, something a little strange happened. I was out walking. I remember it was uh, about dusk. It was very cold and I began to snow very lightly and I walked out and uh, was approaching the house as always. And I, I began to get a, kind of an odd feeling when it came into view. I didn't, didn't feel very good uh, in my mind. I began to feel very tense for some reason, just tense as if I was uh, about to enter some sort of conflict. Didn't understand it. Well, all over my body, I just felt uh, nervous and 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 very tight and wound. And from the middle of the road, I looked at the house and something was wrong with it. Something was off. And the more I looked, the more I realized that I didn't really know all the details of this place as I, as I thought I did. But I became very certain in that moment that certain very specific features of the house were different. One of the things was the shutters. The shutters were different. They were of a different design, and yet still as old, as decrepit, as every other feature of the house. So nothing new had been added, but they were different, I would have sworn. And then the, uh, the molding over the front door was different. There had been some subtle scroll work in it. That was not there anymore. The, the chimney, I, I swear, was 
a little bit taller, and the entire structure of the house itself seemed to have sunk into the earth just a little bit so that the windows were, were lower to the ground than they had been. And, and of these things, I was absolutely certain. And the more certain I became as I stood there getting dark, the more tense I felt, the more I felt sort of cloaked by this unwelcome sense of something bad happening, not in the recent past or in the near future, but right at that moment. At that moment, something was happening. And I thought, this is not the same house. This is not the same house. And I must have stood there for about 20 minutes, and finally I turned and I walked away, and I, I never went back. I never went back. Finally, I moved on, but I, I've never forgotten that strange inner feeling um, combined with the, the sense that my house, of which I had become strangely fond, had been completely replaced by, by something else, and I, I'll never know why or how. Did this seem like something meant for you to discover? I will say that I do not believe any other person would have had the same feeling going to that house. I think there was something in my frequent visitations to it that a kind of relationship had been developed and that was a very specific relationship. And my, the, the feeling I got that last day was intended for me to feel and me, me alone. And whether it was a, a warning, some sort of strange cry for help, or whether I was simply being mocked, that, that I don't know. The dreams had started early for him, since before he can remember. He'd have the sensation of being lifted and moved to a dark place through moonlight, something scratching over the crown of his head. When he woke, his arms were thrust out, aching. There are things you are trying to keep secret, a doctor said, and you've done it for so long you can't tell the difference, and you don't even know what it is. She stared at him. What do you think it is? He thought of the last time he went home, that is, to the home of his parents. They lived in a wide valley cupped by red mountains on all sides, like a great baseball mitt. He drove down through trees and along the burnt fencing of the old road, grown over, haunted by deer and bees. My parents are not my parents, he said. You mean adopted, she asked, and they never admitted it or told you? No, he said, it's not that. The house had seemed small, compact in its green-grassed slot. He leafed through old photo albums and pulled apart their pages with a smacking sound. The old vinyl gave off a chemical, fuel-like smell. Then what? Do you mean? He looked out her office window into a twiggy puff of hedge. Past it, all around them, the business park pushed its soft, annular sidewalks. 
Just say it, she said. It doesn't matter here. In the old pictures, he looked strange. His skin had a blue paleness on the yellowing film, and his joints were bony, overly round like bulbs. I'm not a person. I'm not. He tried to visualize something leaving his body, something thick like oil, attention-breaking. But it was forced and dry. I'm not a human, even. I'm... I'm from the woods. The woods. The doctor sat back in her chair. He had the sense she pitied him, that she could see that a bright disease was blooming in his heart and would soon take him over completely, every sick nerve. Or maybe not the woods, I don't know. He thought of the red cliffs above his childhood home, the rocks. Maybe caves, I'm not sure. She breathed carefully. He shifted, clenched his clammy hands. I was brought to their home and switched. I don't know why. In the house, he watched his mother shift with ease around the kitchen. She smeared pearly mayonnaise on soft, tan bread. Her bird-like shoulders fanned. Later, his father scraped through the TV channels, unable to think of new talk for too long. How's the car? he asked. The blood between them discordant, ill-matched. Then what happens now? And again, there are just so many ways this idea or this image can present itself. Recently, I was watching a documentary about Maurice Sendak and, um, you know, the children's author and illustrator. Uh, he described something that he became very fixated on in childhood, in very young childhood. Um, this is 1932, and he remembers the coverage of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Uh, and he's speaking about that and how it was very traumatic for him because being so young, this was really the first kind of horrific event that he really tried to wrap his mind around. It really stuck with him and... He contends that it began and fueled his uh, kind of obsession with death. So the Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped out of its room. On the second story, Sendak mentions that this property was called Hopewell. Um, a man with a ladder climbed up and took their baby. Then actually things didn't go as planned. Uh, there was a, who knows, a, a slip. Uh, the ladder broke something as he was descending and and actually ended up killing the baby. It was a, ter it was a terrible thing. Um, but he, as a young child, just, you know, this was a much publicized um, and therefore kind of inescapable story. And the horror of that, you know, how, how could such a thing happen to such a 
a protected golden child right under his parents' noses, you know. You know, you really couldn't get much more <laughs> uh, of a at least outward symbol of hope and strength. You know, this uh, tall, handsome American pilot marries a daughter of an ambassador, and he remembers thinking, if if this can happen to them, what's what's protecting me? And so there was this kind of, there was a kind of sympathetic identity adoption going on. And later he wrote a book that kind of blended together some of these preoccupations that, that he had and carried with him. Uh, for instance, the often complex and multi-layered nature of uh, the love of family members. And it was also a changeling story. Uh, if I remember it correctly, some creatures come in the night and steal a baby, which was meant to really be him. And in its place, they leave a, a baby made of ice, which begins to melt. And the creatures use a ladder, like the Lindbergh case. Uh, they use a ladder to climb up and to steal, steal the child. And the ladder is a very curious part of this story because I do remember in some of the versions of the changeling legend that, I, that I've read the, uh, the specific appearance of a ladder uh, to aid in this operation is mentioned very specifically. And the ladder itself is really kind of a provocative symbol, uh, usually meaning something like luck or ascension, um, passing from, from one state to another. So he drew the baby uh, to represent himself intentionally, but he also drew it to resemble the Lindbergh baby. So he was kind of making this image, uh, sort of this private symbol of his fears and obsessions in this book. And at the end, he is retrieved and saved by his sister, who finds the ice baby, and she goes after him. Which means, of course, that he and the stolen baby are safe and brought home. I think this is one of those phenomena where, like, what do you say? What do you say to people? You, there has to be a moment where you sit down and say, okay, it's time to tell someone about this, about what I believe. What, what words can you tell someone that, yes, I, this, there's, a, there's a person that we both know who's not that person anymore. Immediately, the specter of mental illness will be, You'll be cloaked by it immediately because it sounds insane. What are the steps of making someone believe that this can possibly be real? If I if I talk to you about a ghost or thumps in the night or even demonic possession, it's almost I think I have a fighting shot at making someone believe these things if I had enough evidence. But this, uh, the concept of a changeling, what do I say to you? to make you believe this is happening.